The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the American Council of the Blind, along with three million blind and visually impaired SSA recipients, win a major legal victory. Learn more about that victory during ACB Reports for November 2009. But first, fall is not only in the air, it's on the street and in the office. Here's Lynn Cooper from the Mirrors Project with her fall and winter fashion update for men. Mike, essentially the four looks for menswear that were on the runway were the biker look. And what I mean by biker is motorcycle look. A lot of leather, very narrow, very thin. Uh, people who ride motorcycles uh, long distance anywhere will wear leather pants, leather gloves, leather jacket. And this look is reminiscent of that. Very lean, a lot of black leather. Dark. We talked about that in the uh, ladies' segment. Exactly. And, and Mike, what we posited in the women's and what um, people who write about fashion are saying is that it is a very forceful, strong, don't mess with me look. And they believe, as I do too, really, that it is in response to a uh, more difficult time on the job front, the economy, and what have you. We're also seeing military references. That's another strong reference. The military look would not so much be wearing your uh, khakis straight from Iraq on the street or your dress blues and in your old Marine uniform, but what it is is just reminiscent, maybe some brass buttons, or what's real big is a kind of uh, military dress coat worn very irreverently, almost like a band uniform. I think we talk about this for women, too, but worn open with a T-shirt underneath over jeans. Then we have a real big look, which probably has always been around, but we're seeing a lot more of it, and that is a kind of a countryfied look. Essentially, think Britain and what you would wear in the English countryside. Thick wools, many different patterns in one outfit, maybe a paisley shirt underneath all of that. Sweaters, kind of a hand-knit look. Very, very appropriate for parts of the world that um, you actually do have a real winter. And then finally, the futuristic look. What I mean by futuristic is you're seeing um, in maybe jackets or in some um, tote bags or in some wild shirts. Very fashion-forward but very high-tech fabrics, maybe with a little metal woven into them or a little sheen to look like metal. Probably the least wearable look, if you will, and probably the uh, category of the new looks that I would invest the least amount of money in if you're investing in pieces. Essentially, when we speak of suits, across the board, we're seeing a lot more of the three-piece suits. Now, this is not the three-piece suits from the 70s. This is not three-piece suits where all of the elements are the same. You are seeing contrasting fabric for the vest. The three-piece suits are also cut in a very slim. The cut of the suit for fall and winter is very slim. It's not a 1960s throwback, but just imagine all of your suits, but much more body-hugging. Same thing with the slacks. Of course, no pleats. And the three-piece suit, if it is purchased as a suit, the vest has a higher V. Sometimes that's called a gutter, and that essentially, whether it be on a jacket or a vest, is the opening 
until the buttons begin. The new look is with a higher V, which means the buttons come a bit higher up the neck. The vest is seen more under the jacket. We are also seeing two button suits. As I said, slim cut, reflecting the economy, not a lot of excess, not a lot of waste, and very important, two side back vents. This is not a bad idea, and this is always uh, shown. You're either going to have a center vent, but it's much more modern to have two vents in the back of your coat, and that would be for a sport jacket or a uh, suit. And that allows you to get your hands in the pockets comfortably, and it gives a nice clean look to the back. That's going to be around for a while. When you are deciding whether or not the jacket is long enough, you want to be able to comfortably cup your fingers a few inches below the jacket. The jacket should not be mid-thigh, shouldn't be too baggy. And when you're wearing slim trousers, Mike, a rule of thumb is the slimmer the slacks or the slimmer the trousers, same animal, two names, we then want little or no break on the top of the shoes. And definition of break, for those who may not know what that means, when you have a pair of dress pants hemmed, tailored, they will usually break, meaning fold just a little bit and lay on the top of your front of your shoe. But with a slim pant, it doesn't look appropriate to have that break. So you mentioned to your tailor if you buy a pair of pants or you have the trousers with a suit that you want no break or a little break. As I went through oodles and boodles of magazines and websites and saw runway shows for days, it was almost impossible, Mike, to find a color other than dark gray or black. It is definitely a very subdued, safe, time. It, it is nice because those are easy to uh, keep for years and those are good investment pieces. If we do see fabrics that have a little oomph to them and a little um, pattern, they are reminiscent of that country look and they are still in black or gray and ivory and they would be like a hound's tooth, a herringbone pattern, a check, a pin stripe, or a rope stripe. Now, we've not really heard a lot about rope stripe, but rope, essentially, if you think about in your hands how thick a piece of rope is, imagine that wide of a stripe on your uh, jacket or your pants or your suit. And then a chalk stripe would be somewhere in between. Imagine on the chalkboard, the teacher just draws a line with chalk. That, in essence, is how wide a chalk stripe is when it's referred to in clothing. Shirts, you're seeing a lot of plaid shirts, and that's really done a lot. I saw it for young men as well as grown men. Casual, casual, casual. And if it has straight bottom on a shirt, it can be worn outside of the uh, jeans. Um, we're also seeing a big look, which is Henley's. That's a British term of essentially a thin cotton knit T-shirt that was worn, I think it was worn by college men back at the turn of the 20th century when they were rowing down the Thames River and what have you. Imagine a T-shirt, but rather snug-fitting with a little regular crew neck, not a V-neck, with two or three buttons on top on the neckline. And that is a Henley, and we're seeing those in all sorts of uh, knits. 
and you could wear a uh, T-shirt under that. It's usually not thick enough to wear a shirt under that because you don't want to see the crinkles and the wrinkles and the gathers of your shirt under that, but that's a very big look to layer with. Then scarves. We're seeing a lot of scarves, Mike, and we're going to refer to that in a second. Leather jackets, going back to the biker look, very important. If you're going to buy one, look for a very narrow cut, not longer than your waist, certainly not longer than the hips, and a band collar, which is not a lapel collar, not a hood, certainly, and or a band uh, collar or no collar, maybe just a zip. Very few details, not patch pockets, pretty much just slit pockets. It's very, once again, just think lean. If you are feeling the garment, you can sense that there are um, a lot of pieces of adornment, then you don't really want to go in that direction. Coats for dress, we're looking again at trench coats, which is great. And then a real, real big look this year is a straight wool top coat, single-breasted, small lapel, very, very classic. Get it in a very classic color, and you'll have that for years. A casual coat that's big is the pea coat. We often talk about this for women, but I'm not sure over the years if I've ever really mentioned where the heck that name comes from. And the name Peacoat, if it's written, is P-E-A, like the vegetable, but essentially pea comes from what is called pilot cloth, P-I-L-O-T. And this was years ago, back in the um, World War II, was a coat made of very thick, at the time, inexpensive wool. It's double-breasted. It's usually in very, very dark blue or black. was um, given to Navy, to soldiers in the war. It is very, very warm. Broad lapels, very big lapels, almost to the uh, shoulder seam, and vertical slash pockets. What I mean by slash is there's no pocket flap. This usually comes mid to high thigh, And if you get the real McCoy, which I would suggest our listeners do, they can be had for much less money at an Army-Navy surplus store, and they usually, even on the black plastic buttons, have a little anchor. It's a wonderfully warm coat, has remained in fashion for quite a few years, can be worn if you're not wearing a jacket over regular slacks because you don't want to have your jacket hanging out of your coat, which is shorter, but it's a great, great piece. Then we're going to go to jeans. Alternative to our more casual khakis and and chinos, which is more of a thinner, lighter-colored khaki fabric. And we're seeing jeans this season, uh, no surprise, in dark blue and skinny. Once again, that thin profile, medium low on the hips. And I'm not saying so low that, uh, you know, as we sometimes see on the street, men uh, grabbing their uh, pants to pull their uh, waist uh, line up where it belongs. But you don't want the waist to be right at your natural waist. You just want it to ride a little lower. And then also as an alternative to khakis, once again, all of the pants, and I know I sound like uh, I'm repeating myself because I am flat front, we're seeing corduroys, which we mentioned for women, these are thin whale. That's a nice alternative. And cardigans, solid or an argyle print with shirt and a tie and jeans or slacks. It's a great middle-of-the-road look. You're not you know, wanting to go real formal. You don't want to wear a suit, yet you want to look respectable. But be very careful. The dressier ones are in thinner knits. And keep what you're wearing underneath those to be slim because you don't want your shirt bulges underneath. You don't want to be looking through this thin cardigan knit and see bulges of the shirt. 
We also want to leave the bottom button or two buttons open. With regard to sweaters, we're seeing very deep V-necks. So that is a look at the trends for fall and winter 2009. That was Lynn Cooper of Lynn Cooper & Associates, Chicago. You're listening to ACB Reports. You can hear many past installments of ACB Reports on the archive page at acbradio.org. Have a question about the American Council of the Blind or about this program? Write to ACB at this address, 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201. Or phone 800-424-8666. From quiet cars to health care reform to a notable legal victory, Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, has been very busy lately. ACB Reports caught up with Eric shortly after a decision was rendered in a lawsuit which the American Council of the Blind brought against the Social Security Administration in 2005. The judge ruled in the Social Security lawsuit that ACB filed uh, starting back in 2005. And uh, the great news is that the American Council of the Blind, but more than that, uh, millions of blind and visually impaired Americans won the right to have equal access to their benefit program information in alternate formats. It's a huge precedent-setting ruling in that the Social Security Administration is now going to be required to provide its beneficiaries their information in at least Braille or on CD which is tremendous news. Is that audio CD, computer CD? Microsoft Word. This was the actual final, this is it, trials over ruling? This was not a preliminary Well, statement. yeah, I mean, the, the Social Security Administration uh, has the right to appeal if they so choose. But um, this is the ruling as it stands now. It may be that they elect to appeal as uh, the Treasury Department elected to appeal in the currency case. When, then, does this become effective, and when can we expect to see these things from Social Security? That, of course, is based upon whether or not they elect to appeal. So that is not immediately known. You mentioned currency in the Treasury. What's the status of that situation? The the Department of Treasury um, has been providing uh, periodic reports to the judge that oversaw the case. As you'll recall, in the ruling last October... The judge required that the Treasury Department update the judge every six months regarding the progress that was being made. In late July, early August, uh, the Treasury Department provided a report that was public regarding the work that they had done through the previous year, which included the focus groups that they had conducted both at the ACB and NFB conventions, some of the potential solutions and, and things of that nature. I think it's also worth noting, Mike, that the Department of Treasury will be at the Mid-Atlantic ACB conference getting more feedback from blind and visually impaired attendees on potential accessibility solutions. Turn now to legislation, and there are any number of things. Just pick a place and, and start. Well, the health care reform has really been all-consuming on the Hill, and it's been very difficult for any issues to really see uh, the light of day, especially as it pertains to the committees of health care 
is being discussed in. So we've been actively on the Hill talking about issues such as accessible prescription drug labeling, reimbursement under Medicare for assistive devices, you know, things such as magnification devices, and then also reimbursement under Medicare for the services provided by blindness professionals, you know, O&M specialists, low vision therapists, and things of that nature. Unfortunately, our issues are not large enough to be noticed. And that's always a bit of a problem for us, but especially with something as large as health care reform consuming every piece of news you see coming out of Washington right now, it's very, very difficult to get anything else done. It is. And to that end, we've not given up, but we've also looked at potential regulatory involvement as well from CMS and uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, in particular with regard to the prescription drug labeling issue and the reimbursement for assistive devices. We've had a couple of very good meetings with the Director of Medicare Management to talk about those issues. The legislative language that we've been floating on the Hill would not be prescriptive. It, in fact, if implemented through law, would have to go through regulatory implementation anyway through the Department of Health and Human Services. Does that mean a hearing process and public hearings and all that good stuff? Yeah, and then notice of proposed rulemaking and comment periods and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Essentially, our language provides the Secretary of HHS to set up guidelines or things of that nature through the regulatory process to help implement these solutions, you know, to do inquiries into what would be the best way to make prescription drug labels accessible to blind and visually impaired citizens, things of that nature. So it's not overly prescriptive language that we're looking for, but ultimately what we want is a solution to be arrived at and to be implemented through the regulatory process so that it is not a best practice or a voluntary standard or things like that, which unfortunately the blindness community and the broader disability community knows those things are hardly ever adopted very widely if it's not required. I guess the second issue, which surprisingly, given the healthcare debate, still has a lot of legs, is uh, the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act. I'm proud to say that as of today, the 23rd of October, we now have 150 co-sponsors of this piece of legislation in the House, and we have 13 co-sponsors in the Senate, which is tremendous. It's a credit to the ACB membership and their continued advocacy on this issue with their members of Congress, the state affiliates, and the individual members themselves continuing to beat the drum for a sound emission standard to be created for hybrid and electric vehicles so that uh, blind people and uh, those in the general public can identify where those vehicles are when they're traveling at low speeds. You know, that's essentially what the bill calls for. And uh, it calls for the Department of Transportation to do a study after the bill passes, which, by the way, the Department of Transportation is already undertaking. And um, they will be done with their study sometime in January and will be providing uh, recommendations. It is our hope that they will not just provide some recommendations, but also recommend that the proposed solution be implemented through regulation so that it would be required industry-wide. Because the last thing we'd want to see as a community is to have it be applied unevenly or to have some automakers use a certain sound 
or feature and then have others use different sounds or features. Um, I think that that would cause a, a great deal of confusion. It could be, theoretically, that the bill doesn't necessarily need to pass as long as the Department of Transportation recommends that the solution be implemented through regulation. So we'll have to wait and see. But the great part of this legislative process that we're going through right now is that the government is under a lot of pressure to come up with a good, concrete solution. That sort of pressure can't be brought to bear unless the community that is most affected stands up and yells. And we've been yelling very loudly. And um, it's very gratifying for me to watch the continued advocacy on this front. Absolutely. And we said earlier that health care reform is consuming everything on the Hill. That does not mean that we should uh, become quiet on this subject and on others. Absolutely. I had a conversation this week with uh, Representative Towns's legislative assistant who's dealing with this bill. And um, she said, you know, the congressman is really impressed with the real good methodical movement forward with continuing to get more co-sponsors for the bill. It, it continues. I mean, just since uh, I think I put a, an alert out on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, and we had 147, and we've picked up three in the last 48 hours. Pretty remarkable. What's the bill number? There? H.R. 734 in the House and S. 841 in the Senate. Senator Kerry of Massachusetts introduced the Senate bill. They are companion bills, which means they're identical. They're just in different bodies. The 21st Century Telecommunications and uh, Video, what's what's the official name of this thing? Yeah. The, the 21st H- Century? HR 3101, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. It's a mouthful. This piece of legislation, unfortunately, has really suffered as the healthcare debate has raged on because it has been referred to the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And the House Energy and Commerce Committee has had a lot to do with health care reform, particularly over this summer. I'm proud to say that it has 13 co-sponsors. Here again, this is a piece of legislation that seeks to give timely and equal access to individuals with disabilities as it pertains to telecommunications devices and also to video programming devices. One of the challenges that the community has always faced is having equal access to information and communication that the rest of the general public has. Too often, the blindness community in particular gets left behind by new technologies that are rolled out that do not have any form of real accessibility built into them, things like PDAs and other telecommunications devices. You know, we applaud Apple for introducing the iPhone 3GS that has uh, full accessibility on it. We think it's great, but it's one option. And it's an option that I think, and this is not at all meant to be critical of Apple because they've done something really innovative, but it's an option that I think provides a really steep learning curve for a lot of blind people because it deals with flat screen and blind and visually impaired people. Many of them have issues with diabetic neuropathy and, and things of that nature. So we now at least have one device that's out there. Is that consumer choice? I would say probably not, but it's a great thing. That, it's a that start. Apple has yeah, it's a beginning. It's certainly it a sure beginning. It sure is. And, uh, and it proves that industry can actually do this if they want to.
So even though it's moving slowly, we need more co-sponsors for this legislation. We, we need more co-sponsors, but really the issue of disability on Capitol Hill has never been partisan. It's been nonpartisan. The kind of unfortunate thing right now is that all 13 of the co-sponsors are Democrats. And um, what we would really love to see is uh, to have some Republicans sign on as co-sponsors to give it a little more broad-based support overall. We understand that the House and the Senate and the White House are all controlled by the Democrats, but we as a community work best when both parties take an active interest in our issues. Is there anything else? Actually, there is one other thing that relates to the budget, Mike, that I'd like to talk about for just a second. ACB, for the better part of the last year, has been engaged in discussions with Congress and with uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs concerning compliance or lack thereof of Section 508 of the Rehab Act. We have several members that are employees at the VA that have complained for several years and have actually gone through the formal complaint process about being expected to utilize inaccessible software and systems at the VA and uh, having this take a toll on their career advancement and sort of having a stifling effect on their upward mobility at the VA. So in December of last year, we at ACB met with Senate VA committee staff and other staff on the House side, Republicans and Democrats, to talk with them about this. And these offices agreed to send in inquiries to the VA concerning 508 compliance, specifically dealing with certain systems that have been sort of longstanding problems within the VA for blind and visually impaired employees. What has occurred is really pretty interesting. For each of the last six fiscal years, not counting 2010, the VA 508 compliance office had been funded at a rate of less than a million dollars a year, which is astonishing because the VA is the largest employer of disabled Americans in the country. They employ 18,000 disabled employees, of which roughly 400 are blind or visually impaired. So you would think that the VA would be sort of the poster child for accessibility in the workplace, and unfortunately it hasn't always been that way. The 508 Compliance Office is made up of some very dedicated thoughtful people that want to be able to do their job. Unfortunately, given the lack of funds, they've not been able to do their job um, in any real meaningful, successful way. So through these inquiries and meetings that the Senate VA committee had with the VA and then uh, meetings that ACB have had with the VA, magically, the 508 Compliance Office has gone from being funded at $850,000 a year to $8.5 million a year. That's quite a leap. It's quite a leap, yeah. It shows progress. The job is not done because the VA has roughly right now 300 IT-type projects that are moving through their pipeline. And 508 needs to be a component of those projects at a certain point. And uh, $8.5 million isn't necessarily going to get it done either. However... Uh, what this shows is that the VA is taking notice, you know, with the congressional involvement and also with the advocacy of ACB on both fronts, they are standing up and taking notice. There was a very productive meeting that was held in late September with uh, 
ACB's president, Mitch Pomerantz, and I at the VA with high-ranking IT officials and HR folks to talk about these issues. And they are willing to continue to work with us to find solutions for the challenges. The money part is really the most fundamental aspect of all of this. Um, Once they get the money, then we can sit down and really start talking about the best use of that money as it pertains to making the working lives of the blind and visually impaired employees more easy and, and also giving them the ability to go out and succeed in whatever way they want instead of just being held back because of inaccessible software and systems. That was Eric Bridges speaking from the ACB National Office in Arlington, Virginia. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.